You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Sean Parker. Sean is a wonderful actor and writer. We were classmates at Juilliard, and he's one of my favorite artists to be on stage with, and a person it gives me so much joy to call my good friend. His honesty, generosity, and open-heartedness are always apparent in his work, and I was very glad he was willing to share his story with me uh, here for the podcast. Sean lives in L.A. now, and I really miss having these heart-to-hearts with him in person. This was recorded over the phone. I hope you enjoy the 39th episode of The Compass. side for you and how do you try to avoid going there oh gosh okay um i know it's really not fair for me to ask that question first but i just <laughs> no i love that you asked me first <laughs> i really do go big um, or go and home. i knew that it was coming <laughs> from having heard um you know other your start of other other episodes i guess i would say i mean the dark side is so your question is it twofold. So what is the dark side to me? I'll tackle that first. Okay. Um, oh, and which I, as, as oh, we're yeah. starting, I'm realizing I'm apartment sitting by JFK, so I'm realizing how loud the planes are when they go overhead. So if you hear a, a rumbling noise, it's a plane. <laughs> oh, so likewise, if you hear a helicopter, it's probably someone <laughs> going over me. Okay. <laughs> but I don't hear anything, so it's fine. Okay. Um, yeah, I think the dark side is it's everything. Um, so, like with many others, I'm sure it's like a very multifaceted thing. Um, it has to do with, like, of course, rejection plays a part of it. Um, finances definitely play a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, self-doubt, self-image, you know, self-worth, all that kind of, like, how you... Um, if you're not quote-unquote succeeding as an artist in the way that you want to, then, um, you know, just all those identity questions because you were so long sort of invested in that, you know, idea. Um, So that's, of course, all a part of it. But I think with time, I won't say that that's lessened because it's still like when I still get a rejection or something, it's still definitely a blow. But the way that it that it registers now. It's maybe not so immediate or I can read a letter saying I didn't get into a fellowship or something and um, and I don't notice an immediate visceral response in my body. You know? mm. um, which is a sign, I think, of, I don't know what, but I think that um, it, it's sort of like a chain reaction, I think. So like, um, you can, you know, store up a lot of rejection and self-doubt and stuff, and then it surfaces, like, later at times. Um, but for me, like, the, the real, what I'm trying to get at, the, the dark place for me mostly has to do with the work itself and not any of the industry stuff. Because it all comes down to, like, they all have the same guiding principle, all of these dark places, and I think it comes down to lack of control or feeling powerless. Yeah. And the thing is, with work... Like, I don't mind it so much when, because with industry, you always know it's going to be powerless. Um, and I'm sure this will come up later in the talk, but, you know, um, it, it's commerce, you know. And I think the, the longer you're in it, the more you realize, um, you know, how, like they used to tell us acting is a business, you know, mm-hmm. um, in fourth year and like to start to gauge that. But really what I think they're saying is like acting is money, you know, or like you could go one step further. Because um, business, I think, almost sounds too clean. Huh. Um, you know, storytelling, it's, it's money. Um, when you're looking at it for a career, I mean, not for right. purposes of, you know, being at home or family or anything like that. But, but yeah, so, so anyway, I, I was saying with industry, I think you can, the longer, it just comes in waves. Some days it really doesn't bother me at all because... I'm just, um, you're more like attuned to it or, um, you know, you've gone through that initial wave of rejection and, 
and you're just like, all right, you know, I'll find the industry as it finds me, that sort of thing, you know. Um, but when when the dark place is still really difficult is, is with work, and particularly the example I'll give is um, with writing of late, um, or not of late, but just in general. Um, like, so I wrote, wrote a play last summer, uh-huh. um, and I guess, and then I had a reading of it. So I wrote it, I finished in September, um, but it has been a long gestating work. So I would say all told, there's maybe like a thousand hours in, you know, yeah. um, and then, and then you deliver it, you know, you share it for, um, I, cause I had a reading when I was in New York. Uh, really casual, just with friends and stuff um, at school, which was great that we could use the space there. Right. Um, and it was it was about two hours and forty minutes for the three act play. So, um, so let's say you work a thousand hours, then you do a reading for like two and a half hours, and then you have a twenty minute talkback session. Uh-huh. Um, and then you go home and reflect on all this, you know, so the, it's very skewed in terms of, like, how much, just purely from time, how much you have to invest to create something with the scope that you're imagining and then um, to receive such, I guess, like a limited time frame of feedback. It, um, oh you God. start to realize, oh, no, like, there are all these parts of this that um, didn't, come across the way I had imagined. Right. Um, and so I think ultimately the dark place is like feeling sort of betrayed by your own impulses, um, like particularly with writing and also in acting. And we'd know this from, from class so much where we would, um, we would be in a scene and we'd be like, wow, that felt amazing. You know, maybe you wouldn't yeah. say that, but, but you'd just be like, wow, like I was doing that, you know? And then of course you'd find out or like you'd be stopped or something or one of the teachers afterward would, you know, like illuminate the fact that, you know, you weren't um, actually listening at all, you know? And you're like, what, you know? Um, <laughs> it's sort of a similar principle with writing where it can feel so thrilling when you're hooked in and let's say, you know, you've been working for hours yeah. straight and it's really flowing and then you go back to it maybe days, weeks later and you just think like, wow, like I don't doubt the place it was coming from, but, but really the, the feeling is, um, again, you just constantly learning that you can't rely on like the feeling of the process yeah um, and not... i think for sorry go darkness ahead. that's like the, i think that's like the worst sort of feeling because then you don't know how to sort of trust your own process you it's know? that thing like what was that word that i feel like becky always used at school of like your barometer <laughs> Like your barometer is so off or like you can't trust your barometer yeah because something will feel so in touch and then you realize that you totally left out a whole perspective or something a whole thing yeah that is hard yeah I totally I totally know what you mean and especially with spending that something with writing like that where it's so intensive and so many hours that must be really frustrating. Yeah, and and how it loops back to like again the industry stuff and applying for things is like you start to be like, okay, well, if I'm really the only person or one of the few people that's like really reading this and sort of um, critiquing my own work, you know, how can I trust my own process before it? I'm in, like, sort of a workshop setting or something like that, you know? Right. But then also the purpose of a workshop setting is to help you get other perspectives. Is to do that. That's true. Yeah. So it can't, there's a, I mean, it can't be collaborative until a certain point, I guess. Right. I guess that's not true. Some people start, start from a collaborative place. So what do you try to do to keep yourself from going down those rabbit holes or to, you know, when you do feel that way to kind of turn it around? 
always I'm really great at that. That's okay. I mean, and it's an ongoing thing. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, and I think the thing is, is that, like, if you're really in that dark place, I don't think there is, like, a way out. Um, I think it sort of has to ride its course. Um, not that I'm, like, I'm not, like, condoning or, like, advocating just to, like, wallow in, in like, sadness or anything. But there is, you know, that sense of, like, um, I guess how much, how much of it, okay, if you didn't have the dark place, then how would you, like, what sense of overcoming it would there be? It's sort of like you need both. Hmm. Um, And also, I feel like the dark place changes um, over time. Like, it's not a constant thing. For example, like, just out of school, the dark place, or in school, it's like, ah, I feel like um, uh, the teachers aren't understanding me, or, like, I'm being overlooked, and then, you know, and then it changes to, oh, I um, didn't have the response I wanted out of showcase, and then it changes to, I I didn't get the audition that I wanted, um, and then, you know, I didn't get the fellowship I wanted, all that kind of stuff and so if you can see that it's not a constant thing then you know that that it, if it changes then then you can move through it over time you know yeah and that you're you're moving and growing in some way also that it's because it's not the same exactly i see yeah and if your perspective is is shifting. I mean, I guess just in terms of like even goals and stuff are changing, and you know that that you'll always kind of keep regenerating. You know, like there will always be another dark place, and there will always be like another moment of joy. You know, kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And also, like I was in was in an office um, the like a few weeks ago, and um, was like applying for a, a health insurance thing, and there was a woman there, and in her cubicle, it's like, it was just covered in, like, butterflies, like, little stickers and, like, you know, figurines of them, like, all over her computer and desk, and I was like, oh, that's, um, that's so cool, like, you know, I love the butterflies, and, um, and she was like, yeah, it helps you keep me happy, Hmm. Um, and it was, I thought it was such an interesting way that she said that, you know, it was like, it's not like... I enjoy them or something, you know, it's like it keeps me happy, not like it makes me happy or something, you know. Hmm. Um, and I thought, and I think, like, this is so relatable to do that because I think there's a sense that we have to, like, both culturally and, you know, in other ways that we have to sort of um, not, that feeling bad is actually, like, a something that you you have to avoid, you know? Right. Um, but again, not to say, like, wallowing in something, but right. I think there is a fine line. Um, and I guess more specifically what I, what I do try and do, I just try and, you know, stay inspired. When did you kind of make the transition to focusing on writing? I know you're still an actor as well, but you've been mostly yeah. focusing on writing the last couple of years, right? Yeah, absolutely. It happened, I don't know, it's funny, I don't think, I didn't really write in school at all. I mean, I didn't have time, really. But it also wasn't really a desire of mine. Um, it wasn't something that I thought I could really do. I did love creative writing as a kid. Um, in, like, elementary school and everything, I would always, like, love, you know, the prompt where you could just make up a story that was always like the best mm-hmm. um, and um, and I would never want to finish them you know it was like one of those things where there was just a lot of like joy from that exercise um, but then in high school and like acting when I fully you know like been like okay I, I'm an actor kind of thing um, when we had in my drama class when we had to like write a scene um, I enjoyed it but I remember feeling so um uh, like I was coming from such a cognitive place, you know, like really overthinking it. Um, so I didn't enjoy it enough. It didn't like free me in the way that I was experiencing through the outlet of acting at the time. So 
but I didn't really pursue it. And then, um, and then through school, I didn't at all. And then fourth year, um, I did towards the latter, the last few months of the year, um, maybe it was like around out of the Greek in that experience, I started to write um, a screenplay, which was like completely abstract and like took place in the desert and it just had so many huge factors of like um, larger than life kind of thing, you know, like something that would never be made kind of thing. Um, but it was really exciting and um, and I enjoyed it and then I didn't touch it again until, uh, well, I'd not that project, I'd put that to bed, but a year later, um, after spending the year auditioning after school, um, when I parted ways with my agency, and I guess it was maybe August of 2010, you know, I think I spent like a month being like, what am I going to do? Um, and like looking for other avenues. And then all of a sudden, um, I just started to write again. And, and it started from a place of definitely like an outlet because I wasn't going on as, as many auditions. Mm. So it was purely like creative energy needing a, an outlet kind of thing. And then as I got more into it, I think it became more self-serving in the sense of, oh, well, now I can, like, write these, I can write, like, this story or this screenplay or this play that I'm thinking of with, like, a character that I really want to play, you know? Um, right. And so it was very sort of, um, but I wasn't actually, like, technically as invested in the process of, of like learning the process of writing. It was it was very rash and it came out in like very quick um, surges and um, it was in like more like vignettes. And mm-hmm. then I had someone read it. Um, uh, this a friend of mine who, uh, who wrote this awesome movie called Creed Moria. Um, her name's Lee Slimmer. And she... Um, and she since filmed it, but she uh, she read it and she was like, great, now where's the arc? <laughs> and really it was like a kind way of saying like, I don't know what to tell you about, you know, because it was all it was all over the place. It was like, it was purely vignettes, nothing led into anything else. Um, it was very impulsive and erratic and then Something, I guess, changed from that experience, and I it started, and then I really started to focus on okay, who are these characters, and what is this story, and um, and again, that was like a, the first play that I ever wrote. It's called Jack Hart Jump. That's and, right. Um, I think you were involved in the reading of it, or you? Yes, yes, I was. Um. <laughs> And that was, I guess that was the first, like, formed, like, loosely formed work. And um, I don't think it'll ever see the light today. <laughs> <laughs> we'll and see. that's totally fine. It's like, it lives at that, like, first thing, you know? Um, and, and in a weird way, I think, or not in a weird way, but, like, years, fast forward now, several years, and I think I'm writing sort of, like, an iteration of that same type of story, um, but obviously with different characters and setting and everything that I've learned in terms of character development, all of hmm. that. But is it still but taking I think it's the coming around? Is it still taking the form of a play or of a screenplay, or how has that worked? So, so yeah, that's a big part of it. Um, the medium switch. I think I first began writing screenplays. Because um, I know you've I'm always you've always loved film in a way that, even though most of our acting work at Juilliard was theater-based, I felt like I always knew that you wanted to do film, ultimately. Um, yeah, that was a huge... Absolutely. And you were um, way more well-versed in film than I was. 
Yeah, well, I was definitely, like, obsessive in terms of, like, I guess, just rather than reading normal news, I would just read about, like, what was going on in the film world. <laughs> so, I don't know if that was, like, necessarily right, but it's just what I, um, what interested me. So, like, for that reason, I was definitely more engaged in that. And it, at first, it was a visual thing, and, you know, as a kid, film was the first you know, sort of medium that I think that grabs most kids and children just purely from spectacle. And, well, and it's accessible, you know, too. Not everybody lives near a theater where they can see plays. Exactly. Yeah, there's that. And also financially, too. You know, mm-hmm. it's so much easier to drive down the street and pay $12, although now it's like $16 <laughs> to see a movie. You know, as opposed to... Yeah, like, here, you know, um, and paying, you know, premium or some premium sort of prices. Um, so for that reason, definitely, um, it was easier. And then I think, um, I think I remember saying this in school at some point, but it was like when I was, the reason I got into acting was definitely like through watching movies and particularly like Spielberg type movies, um, in 1993, I saw Jurassic Park for the first time um, <laughs> uh, in the, on the big screen, and I couldn't sit through the whole thing the first time. Like, when that dinosaur spits out the black stuff, we had to leave. Oh, my gosh. Um, and then, but I couldn't stop talking about it at home, and so we had to go back the week later. <laughs> and a scary that movie for a kid. I know. It is scary, but it was like a challenge. It was like, I need to know what happens now. Yeah. Um, and, but, I mean, more than the cultural sort of phenomenon it was and how big it is, um, I think it was just such a great first example of, like, size and scope and, like, really being sort of gripped by a thing and, um, and just, and, and also putting together the fact that those, the people in the movie aren't, weren't, like, living in the world of the movie, but we're actually, like, real people. Hmm. Um, And I was like, oh, my God, that's, like, who wouldn't want to do that? You know, who wouldn't want to be trapped in the car and chased by a dinosaur and, like, play pretend? (laughs) Everyone would. (laughs) And then, but, yeah, then, of course, you know, when you become more serious about being an actor, you move into theater. Because, again, it's funny, even though film is more accessible in terms of viewing as a, as a kid. Theater is more accessible in terms of doing as a kid, for sure. Right. So then, you know, I became more invested in, in plays and learning about that. And, um, and at school, I think I always sort of felt kind of split. Um, and I think it's an interesting thing with an institution like Juilliard because it's, you know, of course, it's. I remember... Michael Kahn saying in the very first, you know, the day I auditioned, like, um, this is a school for no theater, um, which it, of course, is. But also, fast forward four years, having gone through the school, it's just interesting that also a large part of what's celebrated and, um, and the alumni and everything involved is is partially like through is mostly through film yeah well that i think that's the same reason is that those the people who see the films are many more than the number of people who can fit in a theater to see you in a play yeah that's true but also from the side of like the school itself i think you know which i'm not like i don't think that's wrong of the school or anything but i i think but it's just interesting that like you know when you go and you look up alumni or whatever, you know, from the school, it's all the, the recognizable sort of, like, you know, what you would think of in terms of, like, film. Right. No, that's true. Actors. Movie stars. And stuff. Yeah, it's just sort of publicized in that way. But anyway, that was a, a tangent, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Ma- so Michael Kahn was saying right about when you auditioned that it was a school for theater. Theater, exactly. And then... Of course, like with Richard Feldman and first year, and um, like in and successively throughout the following years, like plays um, approaching the play and all that. It's so like I still have that that sheet of 
approaching the play and all the questions. And really, I think more than than just learning to be a better actor, we were like taught to be like storytellers in the most um, wide sort of way yeah. know, imaginable in terms of like really dissecting a play. And then, and that's when that became really interesting to me. Um, and also, but I still had the, the whole, I still felt divided in terms of film and stuff. Um, and then fast forward a few years, and um, out of school I was writing screenplays at first. And then I only wrote my first play when I decided to adapt this work into um, a screenplay that I'd written into a, a stage play. Um, hmm. And then now, fast forward even longer, two years, and I'm in a very interesting place right now that is kind of unexpected. But after moving out to Los Angeles, I've um, embraced playwriting in like a huge way. Really? Um, and I've, yeah, I've almost exclusively been writing plays out here. Um, which is completely bizarre if you think of, like... Right, you know, how the industry what, what, out there is... Yeah, just industry, you know, quote-unquote, what the industry in, in, right. in the marketplace. Um, but I think part of that is having to... Having some distance from New York. I've only ever lived in New York. I think moving to, to the West Coast, sort of... I guess when you're not in your... Um, the environment that's so familiar, you, I think, go back to sort of like, okay, what's inspiring me? What? Um, how do I keep creating? And for me, the first impulse for getting back into playwriting was um, to go after something that seemed more accessible um, and something that I thought could be more, um, you know, something that I could, like, produce on my own and kind of thing. Yeah, totally. Um, and then, but what's come of that is, uh, is now, like, when I see film, I actually see how much, and especially film, like, lately, I think, just doesn't, like, just sort of skates over character development. And, and I know that film is, is never, like, a dialogue-driven medium. So it's not even like that, but it's more just, like, I guess I'm seeing, I, I, I'm seeing the way that I wish they were more related, the two mediums. Like, I almost wish films could be more like plays, you know? And I don't think there's any reason why we can't, like, uh, film classics today that are being written today in the way that they did, you know, 40, 50 years ago when that great you know, play or something was written, like, about characters, and, and they really stuck close to the source material. I think that could totally be... I think there's there's people that want that, and I don't think it's just people from a theatrical background. I think people that also just mostly see film recognize that there's less weight being put on character development and more weight being put on sort of, like, visual, like, smoke and mirrors. Right. Well, I'm sure that's all part of the financial side of it, right? Is that, like, films are more and more expensive to produce, less of them are getting produced, they want them all to be sellable, you know, on an international market, so it, it turns into a bunch of Tom Cruise movies and not character studies. Right. Yeah. Of course. But then, and also, like, even commercial ones, I'm trying to example, but I feel like the commercial ones that are most successful um, also they do have that human element. Even in comedy, you know, um, I was saying, uh, I was recently talking to my sister about this, um, like we saw Bridesmaids two years ago in theaters. Oh my god, I um, love that movie. I know, love that movie, of course. Um, it's hilarious, and one of the reasons it's so successful, though, I think, aside from being so funny and so well done, is the fact that it's about this friendship and the fact that this one person who tries to do, you know, this 
make everything right over and over again just fail each time, you know, worse than the last. Um, and it's so human, and it's about their um, their relationship together. And so I think, you know, aside from the, the gags and everything that worked in it, it's, of course, the fact that um, it's, it's also really relatable, and the comedy comes from something that's, like, very honest, you know? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that transition from New York to L.A. and how you made that decision and how being in a new environment has um, influenced your writing? Yeah. Um, yes, I drove out here in October of 2014, I guess. So that's mm-hmm. like a year and nine months or so. And my sister was in Kentucky at the time. So I did, I drove south first and visited her for like two weeks and then continued the journey. So I did take, you know, a good like six weeks to drive out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I taped some money from waiting tables and stuff to, you know, allow myself this break of time before coming out here. Um, and I think the impulse to come out here was largely from wanting a, a complete change of environment. I'd only ever grown up in New York, and um, I grew up in Manhattan on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And then I went to school in the city. And so it was all, you know, it was always, I guess it was just bound to sort of happen to eventually go to a different um, area, but the only other place I could think to go, but still like pursue what I wanted to do, or and I don't think this is true, but I think it's what I was thinking, or what you're sort of trained to think of as an actor is that okay, the other main city is Los Angeles, you right. know, so go there. It's my only choice. Um, my only choice, right? Not that there's all these other amazing cities with thriving, you know, art scenes. Uh, so, but I did, I did it, and um, and I'm actually most nostalgic for that six weeks that I spent on the road where I didn't have, you know, where I was moving from A to B, and I didn't come here having an apartment or a job or anything, I just kind of went for it. So I think if I was really trying to do it in a very seamless, like, intelligent way, I probably would have set that stuff up first, but I really just wanted the adventure of it, and... <laughs> And then once I've been here, um, I think I'm realizing that, you know, New York will always be home, but that Los Angeles and anywhere else I end up will always sort of have this um, element of adventure in the sense that it's just unfamiliar still. And my writing, I think, has, I wouldn't say my output is more necessarily because I was writing a lot before I left New York, but... I will say that I do, I definitely have a lot more isolation out here, um, just purely the fact that I live alone and mm-hmm. um, and the whole car thing. And, you know, so I do spend, there's, I just spend most of my time writing, really. I mean, that wasn't different than New York, but I think, but the, la- the latest play that I'm writing does take place in, in Queens, which is the first time that I've, Really? I'm not, yeah. How has that amount of solitude worked for you? Do you miss having a community, or is it kind of exciting to be on your own and exploring a new place without many people who know you and all of that? Um, Even though I know you've lived there for almost two years now, so. (laughs) No, but it's funny because it still totally feels like that. And that's why, like, the whole time thing is really weird, but just think that it's almost been two years I left because, um, A, because, of course, the weather, and I don't have seasons here, you know, like... Right, um, to mark the like passage of time. Like, right, and that's, of course, a whole other bizarre element, and I know that you're really used to seasons as well. Yeah. And mm-hmm. So that's definitely uh, one thing, but um, I don't know. I think I've always been kind of more isolated. Um, I think... You're a little bit of a liar. Yeah, I think so, for sure. I mean, in school, you can't really be one at all. So, 
you could be to a certain degree, but you're just constantly around, like, the buzz and the energy mm-hmm. of, like, your class and everything. And, um, but I feel like you were, so you were always more plugged into, like, spending time one-on-one with people. Yes, that is very true. That one-on-one is definitely my, my language, for yeah. sure. Yeah, one-on-one is definitely more. And then I, so I guess that's a natural sort of thing. And now, um, and it was this way in New York after school too, though, but my main social outlet is work. Um, Because I'm I'm still a server out here at a restaurant. And it's really helpful, actually, to have, you know, those couple days on, on a week, on a week where you are around that many people and, um, not necessarily that the work is um, inspiring to me in my other work, because it's not, but it does allow me to have that social outlet with really, like, low stakes, and then to sort of just kind of depart, like, a clean break, and then go and do your work when you're not there. And then I, I, so I don't spend a lot of my off days being social, which I don't know how... You know, there's phases where it's necessary, I guess, and, and everyone has their own, you know, sort of gauge of, of you know, that barometer of what they need and, and being around others and, and just doing, like, fun things that aren't related to work at all, you know, which, of course, is necessary. But, um, but yeah, there's also something really great about, like, the times where I felt some of the most joy is when I'm really just locked in and I have my head down and I just, like, go to the library every day in my off days. And, um, hmm. That's been some of the most, like, pivotal, um, you know, the pivotal time that I've had out here has actually been spent at the Writers Guild Library, <laughs> um, which is... Uh, which is a great resource for anyone listening who is out here. Um, it's a library on third and Fairfax, and you don't have to be a guild member. It's open to the public, and they have a lot of scripts, um, television and film, and um, a few, like, playwriting things as well. But um, aside from the resources, it's just, like, super quiet. And um, everyone in there, you know, when you're in there, everyone's just going after the same thing and just wants to tell a great story and you know it's really cool that's awesome how about yourself do you um i mean of course there's frankie like um, socially you mean? yeah so socially i mean do you guys find yourself like going out with others on, on um, dates a lot or is it like has it changed since school i feel like i can definitely be a we can both be homebodies which is great in some ways, um, yeah. but I think I need I need to make an effort to make sure I see people or make sure I go to readings and plays and make myself be seen. It's really easy for me to isolate myself. Uh-huh. And I've become, like, even just this week, I've been apartment sitting out here in the Rockaways for my friend, and Frankie is going to be here on the weekends. He couldn't be here during the week. And like, so I've just been spending a lot of time alone. You know, I've gone into the city for work and back here and just alone. And it, yeah. I love being alone to a certain extent, but at a certain point, it's not good for me. So I'm, I'm uh-huh. becoming aware of like, he's going to be staying in New Jersey for like two months this fall for a play and only coming back, you know, once a week. And I was like, I really need to make an effort while he's gone to see people because it's not my natural, it's not my natural state. I'm not like a, a super, super social person. Um, right. But I think it is healthy for me to, to make myself be around other people. Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise I can get bogged down or feel like I'm not being productive or feel like I'm just disconnected from the world, I think. Yeah, that's a really good point. It can have the reverse sort of. But I also, I do, I do love being alone too. It's a, it's a weird balance. It's like, it's a, I'm a social introvert. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I completely relate to that. You know? Actually. Okay. What did I, we kind of touched on what you've been doing financially with serving, right? That's kind of been what, oh, you, yeah. what you've been doing right. for a while, right? That's what I've been doing I mean, there was a phase where right out of school, I was doing, like, every kind of job, like, you know, 
dog walking. I was like a house assistant for a few weeks. Um, like working at the movie theater. I was a projectionist for a while. Oh, that's right. But, um, but is serving like how many days a week do you end up needing to work to pay your bills? Just like nitty gritty. Does it allow yeah, you enough sure. time for writing? Do you feel? It does. It does. When I break it down, I can. I work like four uh, on average four days a week, let's say. Uh huh. Um, and then I have you know three days off. Um, and that that's like really vital for me. That's good. Um, and also, it helps working at night too. Um, I have worked in restaurants though for a while now, since 2011. I started as a host at this restaurant, Martini, in New York, and then that's where I got in as being a server. After having hosted for a year, they were like, "Yeah, sure, we'll train you." You know, mm-hmm. um, and I was lucky because it was a really high volume place, and so for a first serving gig, it was very lucky. Um, and you do make um, good money for the time that you're putting in there. I, I just, I don't know what else to compare it to because I'm not as familiar with, like, the workforce, I think, and others in terms of, like, other standard jobs and what they pay. But I'd imagine it's, like, it's really good for the amount of time you're putting in. But it's also, it can feel very taxing in terms of, like, having to be on in a way that does, that can feel manufactured. Right. Um, Outgoing, and putting, on your like, feet all day. Yeah, yeah, there's some key, which, which I think is fine, too, because if I'm so solitary and stationary for, like, the other days, it's like, okay, cool, like, I'm walking around, it's great, but, um, but yeah, I think you encounter, um, I think you just sort of have to be, um, just kind of careful about where, I guess, Still giving your your all to a job, but not like your heart to it. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> not that anyone would really want to give their heart to like a serving job, but I mean, like, just in the little sense of like, you know, if something gets you down in the moment at work, like, don't take it home. You know, kind of yeah. thing. And I'm like, I'm so not. I've not perfected that, <laughs> but yeah. um, it's just. Yeah, so it's an, it's an ongoing thing, for sure. And um, it is difficult, definitely. Can you tell me a little bit about how your family has reacted to you living a life as an artist? Yeah, they're, like, 100% completely supportive. They always have been. Um, I was really lucky to have them in, right next door in New York. Um, you know, they could, like, come to every show and... Yeah. Um, they were always so except I think like um, what was so challenging for them was like that first year when it was like sorry you can't see anything you know <laughs> um, but then after that in school of course um, they could come and support and um, I think they, they fell in love with the whole process of of being just the whole class you know the whole notion of like going through this thing together they still ask about know everyone in the class and how they're doing and um, they were so sweet to all of us yeah I think um really I'm really blessed for that for sure and um and my sister has been incredibly encouraging so and um I definitely had some moments especially when I moved away because I think you take it for granted when you're really close but once I moved out west where I would you know just call and you know, after, like, I received a few rejections from fellowships in this past spring, it was sort of like, um, I took it especially rough during one week, and, um, and, you know, they definitely, uh, are just, they're all about keeping on going, you know, being resilient, and they just sort of remind me of that, um, all the time, it's not even something really, um, that I think they have to try to do, and that's what's really stunning about it. It's uh, very effortless, you know? And remind me, are any of them um, artistically inclined? I feel like your sister has done some some artsy yeah, things she, in the past, right? Yeah, she's an amazing piano player, and um, 
certainly a visual artist in in many ways um, and drawing and that sort of thing and my mom um, went to FIT and so she oh. is um, an amazing artist as well like fine art and um, and then she went into design and um, um, but she's like extremely visual and um, photographic and you know design and fashion and that sort of um, element of it um, so it is on that side and my dad is um, is certainly a writer actually in his own in his own work as well which you know he's done more like he's made his living more um, in business than the stock market but um, but he certainly has always like had an incredible facility with language and he's been um, writing a lot more of late as well so it's definitely hmm. fair do you do you feel like you guys can have a dialogue about that or is it more of an unspoken thing about writing yeah yeah we've it's we have like lately more our discussions when we talk over the phone will will go um in that direction um so that's great and um and it's also great that it's uh, our interests are like varied enough where it's like i um i think there's always more to learn from him he's like encyclopedic in a lot of ways just in terms of history and and also uh like fiction and literature and you know things that I will never, even if I put in, like, all the time in the world, I wouldn't have, like, mm-hmm. absorbed as much information as I feel like he has already. So, um, so for that reason, yeah. And, and it has been fun to have him sort of, like, prompt me with, with questions about, you know, my own work and writing. Is there something in the last couple of years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? Like, a lesson you've learned or doesn't have to be an obvious accomplishment, but something that you're just really proud of? Yeah. So earlier, when I wrote that play last summer, I actually, I took off from work. Um, or I, I left the restaurant not knowing if I was going to go back. And um, I took a good three months off. So I saved, you know, money while I had been working there um, to cover the rent for those months. Um, and it was really like I was just going to write this play and get it ready for this fellowship, and um, uh, and nothing else mattered. Um, and for that, I think taking that risk was like the best decision I've made as an artist to date. Because hmm. um, although, of course, my money was like depleting and. And it felt weird because I, I felt like I was claiming the profession of writing before I was actually being funded to do it. So I felt sort of like this almost guilt over it, you know, but but I still did it. And um, and now I think even though it didn't, I, I didn't get into like the fellow, the exact fellowship that I wanted with it or anything, it's... Uh, I think just the, like keeping that sort of risk mechanism going, um, like I'll never be afraid to do that again down the road if that if I'm presented with that the same you know um, liberty to do that, and and also I think mostly um, being less sort of ashamed of writing material with yourself in mind for certain roles. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been a huge thing and a huge part of the process because I don't consider myself exclusively an actor or exclusively a playwright and I think labels also are only necessary in a world where commerce is is everything yeah um, totally you know I don't think there's any other reason for those titles but um, but specifically if you're like Okay, if you say you're an actor, and that was funny, I was listening to to a previous episode, and you guys were talking about, like, eye rolls that you could get yeah. um, from people when you say, you know, um, and how, like, what's worse, saying you're an actor or a writer. 
and then I think like there's another eye roll that you can get when you're like when it it's revealed that you're like an actor who writes and also for themselves. Yeah. Um, because that's like a triple eye roll of like okay sure um, <laughs> you know you're just like self-serving and all that but and it's weird it's like we have this double standard I think where comedians and comic performers are much more sort of allowed to um, or expected to write for themselves mm-hmm. in a way where if, if you're writing a story that maybe has elements of comedy but is also, you know, a, a tragedy or something, that that would just be sort of, I don't know, it's kind of strange um, to people, and I don't know why that is, but I think, I think uh, in the past two years since moving, it's grown more into the idea of, like, there's no reason why. Like, if you think about it in terms of musicians, right? Um, and there are certain musicians who only write music for themselves. Um, it's, it's most natural for them to do that and for them to do another song or a cover of something be strange, you know? Yeah. Um, and they produce full albums of music, you know, with their own voice in mind. And I think there, there's something really kind of great about that. I think it just means that you have to, like, work a lot harder to get to the to make sure that, you know, you're doing it for the right reasons and that you're right. really trying to tell a great story. And, to well, and that all the story. other characters have a distinct voice, I feel like. That, of course, the character you're writing for yourself is going to be really specific because you probably relate to it in some way or you have a desire to tell that story. 100%. And it's funny because actually the other character can maybe reveal itself more easily to you. Um... Like, this thing I'm writing right now, it's just a two-hander, two-person play, and the brother and a sister. And um, the sister is, like, I'm grasping, I think, a lot. Um, I wouldn't say easier, but it's just, like, more clear who they are. Um, whereas when I arrive at the brother, keep coming back to, like, how they oppose each other, um, I'm sort of trying to create, like, a unity of opposites in what going on between them and with him I feel like he can always be fluid like I always have all these these different directions that I could go in but um so it's funny because sometimes it can work in the opposite way yeah part of the process that I'm really excited for is when I can incorporate others like you know other people that I know into into the process like once something workshops and that kind of thing and yeah the idea of like writing for friends is like really exciting too because yeah, I know how be much dream. not be only like their their talent and the things that you know they do so well but also like we're in it together in terms of like not having jobs you know so to me that would be like a perfect scenario to be able to like create something where you're just sort of working with like-minded people and friends and being able to create work for each other I mean, it's so smart, and it's something, like, I haven't really been drawn to writing, but I, I, I want to keep trying, and I wish that I were, because it's really, like, it's the way things are going right now, is you need to create work for yourself, so I think there's no, there's no shame in writing material that you see yourself acting into. I think that's smart, and... That's great. Thank you. And I think it's more and more and more acceptable, because that's the way the media is going, because otherwise it's, right. like, all about names and you have to already be famous to get cast as something. Right. And, but if you can create a vehicle for yourself, then you have some power. Or, like you were talking about before, like, you have control, and that's what it's all about. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've experienced a lot of control. Yeah. Um, just purely through the process of, like, of the writing part of it, you know. Um, but also, and it's funny, you know how... They say that writers write the same story over and over again, uh-huh. but that but that they just sort of like you know change, of course, the characters and like events and stuff. But they essentially boil down. They have like one story to tell. Like, I guess the theory. Well, I feel that it's all. You could say the same exact thing for actors. I feel like actors are born.
one with one story to tell. And I mean, take this with a grain of salt, but um, I feel like actors are born with one story to tell. And and when they're when they read, but to tell it over and over again in so many different ways. And when they read a play or a movie, and they're gonna audition, and they're like, oh my god, like this part is everything. This is me, you know. And this is the perfect time in my life to do this. Like it's like it's done, you know. That really, I think what they're saying is, is like, is oh, that I think they're saying the same thing that that a writer is when they're writing their their own work. It's like it's sort of like it finds you kind of thing. And I think it, I think even if actors don't feel an impulse to write per se, that they definitely have that singular story in them. And I think. Anything they can do in terms of like world building, like I don't know, just like music or that inspires them, like a soundtrack to a story that they imagine, like all that kind of stuff can only like sort of help that come out essentially. Yeah, it's true that each actor is kind of drawn to their same pocket of stories or their strong suit. Yeah, and I don't think the actor is any weak because of it. Weaker, and I think also that they could be technically a character actor and still, yeah, be drawn to a certain type of thing. You know, it's not necessarily like the way they stretch. It's more like I don't know. There's like a, a spirit to it. You know, almost like a spiritual element to the to the work. Are there any concrete things that you turn to again and again if you're having a day where you just feel? uninspired or that you are going to a dark place and you need to get out of it like is there a book that you reread or a album that you listen to or a place that you go I definitely try to um, immerse myself in stories of other artists who have um, you know gone before you kind of thing and and not just actors almost actually usually not actors because for whatever reason I'm I find, like, bios and stories on actors, like, slightly manufactured. I don't know why, but that might just be, like, of late kind of thing, but... Um, no, I think sometimes but, seeing art that isn't your field or reading about artists that aren't in your field, it's it gives you a little bit of yeah, distance to be inspired. It does, and, like, in going to this world-building thing we're talking about, like, just stories, like, for example, we were talking about Disneyland before... Um, Walt Disney uh, has a really, you know, fascinating story, and um, I haven't read it yet, but I just bought this Time magazine with him on the cover, and the whole story is, like, I guess, it's it's like all these Time articles have been through time. Um, But, uh, you know, apparently just little things, like just reminders, like I just read a section of it that was saying that Bambi was a huge flop when it came out. Hmm. and I was like, what? You know, um, that's not something that you imagine. You, you see these, you know, icons, and it doesn't even have to be an icon. It could be any artist. And you tend to see them for their, like, legend status, but not for, um, like, all of the failure, you know, quote-unquote yeah. failure. Well, or, this, or the journey. The journey. That's a great way of putting it. That's why I like doing these interviews is because I I know every person I'm talking to is great, but I want to hear about what they're doing right now, not in 50 years, because that's what's interesting to me. That's such a great way of putting it. Yeah, what they're doing now. I mean, that's so true. Not looking back Uh, on it from their fifth Oscar win, but what it is when they're (laughs) slogging through the mud. You know. Yeah, and you're actually, I mean, because of it, you're getting a lot more honesty, I think, <laughs> than you would, you know, looking back from your success on what came before. You know, there's no other way but to be honest when you're kind of in it, you know? So that's why I'm really appreciative for what you're doing. Well, yeah, there's just, there's so many, there's so many stories like that. I just read Withering Heights for the first time. Oh, really? Um, and Emily Bronte is one of those people where I was like, are you serious? Like, I, I, don't quote me, but I think she passed when she was 30, 29 or 30, and she wrote the book the year before. Oh my gosh. Um, and it was her only novel. 
and it's like, and it wasn't a success at all, and it's sort of like, um, you know, by any monetary means, I mean. And Jane Eyre, written by her sister, was like far more um, considered superior to it. And then, you know, fast forward time, and I'm so fascinated by like what the impulse was for them to, because uh, she obviously had to get that story up, you know, and like her whole life was like, almost culminating into that story. It's like, it's such a like, powerful amount of energy. Right now, from where you are right now in your journey, like how do you define success as compared to, like we were talking about with the dark side, like what other people define success as? And um, right. how do you kind of picture that right now and in a long-term view? Or how is that different from what it started out being when you left school? Because I know my view has changed. (laughs) Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I mean, very simply, and this isn't the full answer, but just very simply, one thing that has remained is that I would love to make a living doing what I'd like to do. Yeah. Um, Totally. And I think we can all say that without a shadow of a doubt. (laughs) So that's, that's, of course, success in a primary basic bubble. Like, you know, being able to take care of your needs and the ones that you love that are closest to you, you know, monetarily by doing what you love. Um, who doesn't want that, you know? But also, I don't know, it's so funny. Like, when you think about, you think, I don't know, and it goes back to rejection. Because when you get the rejection for things, and you're really bummed out, you know, you fast forward a few, you can find, you look back and you think, that's not my idea, that wasn't like the be-all, end-all idea of my success, you know? Right. So, like, perspective is constantly shifting, I think, in terms of what you... Well, in the moment, any defeat can seem like the be-all, end-all. The be-all, end-all, that's very true. Um... I think success is just going to be, oh, well, okay, it's going to be, I guess, continuing to merge both outlets of my writing and acting, however I can do that. Um, Awesome. Because I think before I was primarily actor, now I think I'm considered primarily writer, but I, I really look forward to the intersection of those in the future and whatever that will be, that will be success. Are there any recommendations that you want to give to th- things that you've seen or read lately? Or uh, um, There is, yes. And actually a lot of people who are listening to this have probably read it already. Um, but in the, in the newest, I think it's the newest publication of The Glass Menagerie, um, there's an essay written by Tennessee Williams at the end of it, and it's called The Catastrophe of Success. Um, have you, did you read that? No. Oh my God, it's so, it's so brilliant. There's, um, so it was, it was published in the New York Times, like, about two years after The Glass Menagerie was first produced in Chicago, um, and it sort of did chart he in it he talks about and it's so brilliant for where we all are and listening to this podcast um because he talks about how he was launched from you know obscurity to suddenly being like the center of new york theater in you know in such a short period of time with the glass menagerie and how he's living in a hotel and put up in a hotel for a while and he uh he said that he started to he got really depressed and he stops being able to accept um, uh, like compliments from people. Um, and whenever they were like, I loved your play, he would just like turn away from them because he like, didn't know how to react to that for a while. Um, which of course, like reading this, you're like, really? You know, <laughs> you're like, that sounds you know, really hard. Um, but then, but he does it in such an eloquent way and he comes back around to saying, um, the main gist of it is that the artist, like the plight of the artist is to be in a state of struggle. Um, or I shouldn't say the plight, the, 
he's saying that work comes out of a place of struggle and that hmm. being suddenly put in this hotel and everything is actually, um, it was like he was grasping at, at air, you know, where before he had climbed up these, these rocks, like, you know, constantly trying to get ahead and then suddenly he got to the top and there was nothing left and then he realized that, that being, still having that energy but not having it, like, push him anywhere was um, actually taking away um, who he was as an, as an artist and what was essential for him to keep creating art. Um, and long story short, he, um, he ended up having an eye operation. And um, he said the time behind the gauze that he spent was like pivotal because he actually couldn't see the world and he could only rely on like hearing people. And when friend came to the hospital, he said he started to really hear their words for what they were. And then he moved out of the hotel and he, um, and he moved to Mexico for a few weeks and wrote the poker night, which became Streetcar New Desire or part of it. <laughs> huh. so, but he has, anyway, I have it in front of me. If you'll allow me, I will read a tiny little three-sentence passage. He says, It is only in his work that an artist can find reality and satisfaction, for the actual world is less intense than the world of his invention, and consequently his life, without recourse to violent disorder, does not seem very substantial. The right condition for him is that in which his work is not only convenient, but unavoidable. That's really beautiful. It's extreme, but I think it's all right well i gotta find that whole introduction thank you yes yeah it's, it's just like five pages and it's in the back of the glass menagerie that has the black cover with the abstract white pencil drawing sean you're wonderful and i'm i'm really thankful that you're my friend and that you're willing to open up to us for the podcast thank you oh likewise yeah it's like a great privilege to be asked to to do this and um and I'm really grateful to be a part of this and a part of your creation. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that. And thank you for trusting that I had something that I was willing to communicate. I love you. I love you too. listening to the compass podcast i'm leah walsh more episodes are coming soon please look for us on facebook and itunes i'd like to thank the following people for their generosity the compass cover art is by kim miller music by brendan spieth audio assistance from nick choksi and a special thanks to frankie j alvarez see you next time Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.